Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. We've got so much to get through this week. We, we really do. Yeah, we, we do. We really do. Letters yes, are We're going to remember in. our challenge, which, you know, we didn't before. A while ago, a lovely listener wrote in and suggested that we do a little project that we all go off and buy a secondhand book and then sort of tell each other about it. So we got a wonderful letter from a listener. I won't read the whole thing, even though it's a brilliant letter saying on the 2nd of June, I was in Annick and visited Barter Books, of course, which I have been to, I think, once. And I think you have as well. Have you, Alex? I haven't. I haven't, but I have heard on it. I have heard of it and I'll come to that in a second. Okay, but then the book that caught their eye on entering was The Iron Wolf and Other Stories, which is a collection of folk tales retold by Richard Adams, Richard Adams of Watership Down fame, presumably. And Sardic. And the plague dogs. Let oh, us not you're, you're very knowledgeable. That I, I could only go with the big one. That's all I know. Um, and it had watercolors by Anne Yvonne Gilbert. And then they realized later on that on the inside was a dedication by the illustrator Anne Yvonne Gilbert. And then it says Anne Yvonne Gilbert, most famous probably for her cover of Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And this threw me for a bit because I thought it was a cover like another song. And I thought, well, the only version I know is Relax. I think it must mean the cover art which is fascinating kind of side angle, is it? Mm. Um, so the listener is saying that they got a bargain price. I got a book signed by the illustrator, and I wonder how it came to be in Barter Books. And one more thing, we're going to just have to swerve off books for a minute because they brilliantly said, we were talking about liverish last week when we were talking about Just William, and Just William's dad always feels a bit liverish, and we were wondering whether that means really basically. Hungover. Yeah, exactly. He says, maybe the German language can help elucidate the term. In Austria, if you say something has run over your liver, it means you are upset and grumpy for some unknown reason. Maybe the liver was regarded as the seat of grumpiness, possibly connected to bad digestion. Isn't that brilliant? We're perhaps going back to medieval humours, aren't we? That's what it sounds like. No, I think if anything ran over your liver, you'd feel upset and grumpy, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Wouldn't make you feel happy and light. Let alone a bottle of tequila. (laughs) really interesting the mention of barter books there serendipity I suppose it's not a bookshop I've had ever come across until recently I was writing an obituary for 
the wonderful crime writer Susie Steiner mm. and in her life before as a journalist before she became the creator of detective inspector Manon Bradshaw she had discovered in Barter Books, the Keep Calm and Carry On poster. She'd actually seen it on the wall of a writing retreat she was in in Devon. And she'd been in touch with the bookshop because she wanted to feature it in a sort of roundup of nice things you might have in your home. And they had discovered it. And that was how the whole Keep Calm and Carry On oh, you phenomenon mean had, happened. They were the first to rediscover they it. They had exactly wow. that. And, and she, she said sort of later in interviews, but you know, she didn't feel that she could be held entirely responsible for the for the whole phenomenon because it <laughs> the did it's, it's, it, it did kind of go on too long, I suppose. But what an extraordinary sort of connection, having you know heard of it twice then in a few weeks. But it does give me a chance to say that I thoroughly recommend Susie Steiner's Man on Bradshaw trilogy. So that is another chance to say that very welcome thing. But what a lovely letter from our listener. Our one listener. No, one of our many millions of listeners. <laughs> one of our many listeners. One of it's our many a, listeners. It's a brilliant letter. So do keep them coming. Do write to us at letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk. We'll tell you about any books that we've come across. I've got one, but I don't think we've got time to listen to me. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. Especially not if we're going to do a quick 20 seconds on our gardens. What's going on? I've got some new roses and my corn cockles have come up. I don't know what corn cockles are. Just absolutely blissful. I'm now kind of worried that I talked about them last week because I'm sort of become obsessed with them. This beautiful, delicate wildflower. Absolutely wonderful. Just scattered them in a sort of wildflower mix. And they are the heroes of my little wild patch at the minute. How's it going in yours? It's like the desert. Oh. (laughs) I'm afraid. Yeah, no, it's like the desert. They're all a bit sad, especially the much talked about hydrangeas which if they could talk, they'd be going, please water me. Though I do have a couple of roses blooming again, roses which never do, which are supposed to be once flowering. Are well, yours once flowering as well? They are, they're floribundas, and they are just looking that wonderful sort of blousiness mm. that they have. They're, what are they called? Icebergs, beautiful burgundy icebergs, absolutely beautiful. But of course, you know, it's now time to start thinking about next year. And that's when it gets really exciting, isn't it? It is. Actually, I find the summer a bit difficult because it's it's happening or it's happened and there's a bit of a lull. And then, uh, yes, and then it, I suppose in September you can start thinking about next year. We're nearly which at we September. will. Yeah, we will. Um, however, we've got so much to do today because this week Professor Roy Foster joins us to explore the life of a debutante turned terrorist, Rose Dugdale, and we go à la recherche of the fascinating French concept of actualité. But first, an upbringing on a Devon estate with a Chelsea townhouse at one's disposal might seem to suggest luxury and leisure, but Rose Dugdale chose the exact opposite, embarking on a life of revolutionary violence that would see her imprisoned. At university, she was part of Iris Murdoch's set. Decades later, she would be experimenting with bombs on the Mayo coast. A new biography by Sean O'Driscoll explores her life, and Roy Foster has reviewed it in this week's paper. He joins us now. Welcome, Roy. Hello, Alex. Good to be here. This is, is such a fascinating review of what is clearly a fascinating book. You make the point that Rose Dugdale feels as though she might have stepped out of a novel by Doris Lessing or even Henry James. Tell us a little bit more about her. I mean, she's still alive, isn't she? Yes, very much so. She's always fascinated me, and I found this biography riveting because I've always been interested in her. I Long ago, I got into some trouble for writing an essay called Marginal Men and Mix on the Make, which was about how, for, for some English people, Ireland provides a kind of force field for their energies and they they become Irish they adopt the Irish cause as they see it and they find in Ireland a solution to their own often personal difficulties and there's a reverse thing whereby Irish people go to England and remake themselves there and Rose Dugdale fits into this she's like Maud Gone or the actor Michal MacLeamore or the um, soldier Erskine Childers who take up Ireland and transform themselves often in a quite radical and sometimes dangerous way. I mean, this is the woman who 
bombed border posts in Straban from commandeered helicopter with milk churns filled with explosives in the 1970s. She's the woman who hijacked incredibly invaluable paintings from Sir Alfred Bight's house in Rusborough, Goya's, Vermeer's, Halse's, and held them to ransom to try and get IRA prisoners released from jails in Britain. And yet she comes, as you said, Alex, from a very privileged background. There was remarkable even in, in the 1950s for being, you know, white gloves worn up to the elbows, dressing for dinner, governesses, nannies, all that sort of thing, and rejected it in an incredibly spectacular way. I mean, her upbringing does sound absolutely singular. Her mother had been married to Oswald Mosley's brother. And I wonder what kind of effect that had on her. I mean, it sounds like she, politically speaking, went in a, a completely opposite ideological direction. Well, except that Mosley himself, of course, began life as a radical politician, mm. radical mm. in a Labour Party way. To be honest, Alex, I don't think, I think that was pretty much in her very pushy upper-class mother's distant past. Uh -huh. When Rose was growing up, she had remarried into the Devon gentry and the estate at Yartree and all the rest of it. And I think if one looks to find a kind of pattern of rejection in Rose Dugdale's life, it's much more the stultifying way she herself was brought up in that debutante world. And the fact that she was highly intelligent and a radical economist and did a PhD in development economics. There's a very good story in Ferdinand Mount's memoir, Cold Cream, where he dances with her at a debutante ball and he says something about how wonderfully romantic it all is. And she says, it's a complete and utter waste of money. And he realizes then that she's not the kind of debutante that are whirling in their white dresses all around them. So I think it's it's more a repudiation of the background she immediately grew up with than a harking back to her mm. mother's interesting early marriage. So she would have been expected then to marry, not really to do anything much in the way of having a career, let alone a career in radical politics. But she went to Oxford. She did sort of one escape and she found herself moving in, as you say, Iris Murdoch's circle. What might have been expected of her then, I wonder? Would she have been perhaps an academic? Yes, she had a PhD, but she also rather bucks the trend by having an affair with a very famous lesbian tutor at St. Anne's called Peter Aidy, whom she sustains a relationship with in a sense all her life. Well, certainly for many, many years afterwards, though their love affair fizzles out. So she's already, as I say, going against the grain there. But after going with Aidy to America as her research assistant and doing a PhD on her own account, she comes back and throws herself into activist community politics in Tottenham in North London. And I knew people in activist politics in the 70s who came across her then. And they said, actually, a sister of mine who was involved in similar politics in Notting Hill said that she met Rose Dugdale a few times and she always gave the impression of waiting to be told to do something, you know, just looking for a cause that might be even more um, against the grain than what she was involved in. And that's exactly what she found in the early 70s in Ireland, which in Northern Ireland, which she saw very much as a straightforward instance of capitalist oppression and colonialist politics. The idea of other elements and other perspectives to the violence in Northern Ireland just didn't strike her. She has a very Occam's razor kind of approach, I think, to politics. It's black and white, it's with us or against us. And later in life, she's clearly not very enamored of the peace process. She and her partner are developing armaments for the IRA on the Mayo coast, while Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness are trying to move things in a different direction. So she was essentially sort of opposed at some level to that idea of making an accommodation of moving forward with a sort of agreed consensual peace process. Very much so. And I think the people who switched from violent provisional IRA politics and terrorism to that approach were people who realised belatedly and often reluctantly that the problem in Northern Ireland was not so much the oppressive British state manipulating what was going on there as the existence of a million determined Ulster Unionists. I don't think Dugdale saw that in the same way. Why I liken her to heroines of or characters in novels like The Prince James's The Princess Casamassima or Doris Lessing's The Good Terrorist, which she's very reminiscent of, mm. is that she's 
absolutely determined that she knows she's right. She's not open to different approaches. She has that the strength of being extremely myopic, if you like. And how had that conversion taken place, I wonder? I mean, you mentioned that she was involved in radical politics in North London. And of course, there were examples of Republican communities in North London at that time. Was that how she first encountered Republican politics? This is slightly obscure. It was a kind of a package deal. I remember the early 70s. I came to live in England in 1974 from Ireland. And there was a kind of package deal on the left, actually, which Jeremy Corbyn bought into as well, that what was going on in Northern Ireland was part of capitalist oppression and that it was all one story and that this was just the most naked expression of Britain's colonial policies in the world. You kind of, I think you graduated quite quickly to that. And also it was more spectacular, it was more exciting, it was more fun than, you know, campaigning for better conditions for workers in factories or arranging radical strike movements on the railways or whatever. It was, it had a glamour, I think a glamour about it. And that fits again with this marginal men and mixed on the make idea that Ireland has this kind of glamour for English people who feel themselves misfits in their own communities. And I have to say, I think O'Driscoll's book is terrific at profiling somebody in this position. He's also very good and he's done a lot of research, I think, at showing how her English family, her very posh English family, do want to keep in touch with her. She doesn't want to keep in touch with them. And the correspondence between them right up to the present day seems to involve, you know, here's a check for some ground rents that have come in from some properties we own in such and such a place, or this is the payoff from such and such a share dividend deal. I don't quite know how you declare this for tax in Ireland, but here's your share. It's, there's something <laughs> very funny about it. So there's very much that they haven't, in that sense, disowned her. You know, she hasn't been disinherited, no, but it's not a two-way street. She, exactly, she, yeah. exactly. I would say in a certain sense, it's a sympathetic biography and that he's got quite close to her. But what I like about it too is that he doesn't mince words about the damage and the violence and the cruelty of the outcomes of the policies or the actions which she espoused. Yes, I mean, she, you know, very clearly was no dilettante in that she followed through. She ended up in prison. She, as you say, commandeered a, a helicopter. She was part of the, some of the most extraordinarily violent moments in the Republican campaign in England, wasn't she? Yes, she and her partner Jim Monaghan developed some of the rocket launching and quite innovative bombing techniques which were used to kill civilians at Warrington and the Baltic Exchange. And they were doing this and continuing to do this with passionate commitment right through the years of the peace process in the 1990s. I mean, she was born in, in 1941, Alex, so she's, mm. what, 81 now and in failing health. Even the last stage of her life, which this probably is, because as I say, she's 81 and in frail health, is like something from a Murdoch novel. She's in a Dublin nursing home, Catholic nursing home, run by the poor servants of the Mother of God. And aged nuns hobble into her room in Zimmer frames and take tea with her and everyone thinks she's great. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, one of the things that, as you say, this idea of the revolutionary zealot, you're always interested in what motivates them. I mean, you think of people like Patty Hearst, for example. It's also interesting to think, isn't it, of what the causes that they join make of them. I mean, what do Irish politicians, what did they feel about her and revolutionaries? What did they feel about her? What do they feel about her now? Well, when she came out of Limerick prison and she had a child in prison by one of her Republican associates, Eddie Gallagher, which also hit the headlines and everything, she involved herself in what were called politely community politics in the very deprived inner city areas of Dublin. And she spearheaded a movement against drug dealers, hard drug dealers there. And this gave her a certain cachet. Now, mind you, this was a movement which was very much run by the provisional IRA, but it put her in a slightly different light, almost, well, almost a do-gooding light, which is why she reminds me of the characters in novels like The Good Terrorist. Mm. And at the same time, though, and this is one thing in which Odrisk's book is very valuable, she is still a hardline, paid-up, provisional IRA supporter, and as I say, the, the development of rocket launchers 
including the apparently well-known digestive biscuit launcher, where you, you insert a pack of digestive biscuits in the column of the launcher to moderate the recoil effect on your arm. I mean, it's this kind of world is still what she's involved in, as well as the um, eradication of drug dealing through pretty often, probably necessarily brutal means on the Dublin housing estates. So she has a certain cachet. And O'Driscoll's very interesting on finding the Republican families who looked after her child by Eddie Gallagher while she was in prison and the Republican family on the Mayo coast. And that is not in Northern Ireland. It's in the Republic mm. who put her and Jim Monaghan up while they were developing their bombing equipment in the sand dunes of remote Irish beaches. He's interviewed all of them. And of course, what he gets from them is this figure of endless kindness and commitment and somebody who coaches their kids to get through exams and teaches them to drive on the farm tractor and is a immensely popular and well-respected figure but you know tell that to the prison wardress in whose face Rose Dugdale threw a boiling kettle of scalding water and disfigured her while she was in Limerick prison or tell that to the parents and families of people who were blown up at Warrington or at the Baltic Exchange, and they would have a different view. Yes, exactly. I mean, some of the things that she did, I mean, you mentioned earlier the theft of the paintings from Sir Alfred Bates' house in order to use them as a collateral in negotiating for the release of Republican prisoners. I mean, they, again, have this kind of, well, that sort of filmic quality, don't they? I mean, they must have been yes, immensely... And she knew... Yes, yes, she, she knew the impact she was having. Well, no, I was going to say she knew the paintings to go for. I mean, Alfred Bryson, right. who was interviewed yes. by journalists, said this woman who faked a French accent, by the way, she's very much cloak and dagger in this. She's pretending to be a French woman. Anyway, she knew exactly the paintings, the good ones, the best ones in the legendary Byte collection, which the Bites left to the Irish nation, by the way, and which can now be seen in um, National Gallery of Ireland. She knew exactly the paintings to go for. And Sir Alfred Bite said that the woman who headed the gang knew exactly what she was doing. And of course, she'd grown up surrounded by beautiful things and priceless paintings and all the rest of it. So again, her background is being put to good use here. I wonder if it's even possible that sort of collision of the near aristocracy with the bloodthirstiness of radical activist politics. I wonder if it's even possible to think of something like that happening now. I mean, it's a really hypothetical question, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yes, it, it recalls to me really more the revolutionary era of 100 years ago. And the person she reminds me of very much is Yeats's great muse, Maud Gaughan. Maud Gaughan, of course, a legendary beauty, which Rose Dugdale was not. But Maud Gaughan came from an English military background, experienced Ireland when her father was posted there and decided to become Irish, invented a kind of Irish background for herself, became more radical than the most radical nationalists planned to plant bombs in the coal bunkers on British troop ships, spent her honeymoon with another radical whom she married, another revolutionary, John McBride. They spent their honeymoon reconnoitering opportunities to assassinate King Edward VII. And she ends up again working for prisoners' organisations in Ireland and is indomitably Republican and again the government for the rest of her life. Very much Rose Dugdale's trajectory. Constance Markovich, born in Ireland as Constance Gore Booth, but from an Anglo-Irish grand family, is a similar figure. I think in the early 20th century, there are more Rose Dugdales around than there are in the early 21st century, mm. for better or worse. Roy, the way that you describe this book in your review and talking to you today, I think I, I said to you when I asked if you might be able to come and talk to us about it, whether or not you could, I would have immediately ordered this book. It sounds completely... <laughs> Gripping. I mean, it really, it really does. Well, um, I hope I, many I, more people order because it's. I think it's terrifically interesting. And, and that that real difficulty of also being the biographer of of someone still living and someone to whom you've you've had access, but you've got to tread that kind of very sort of fine line, haven't you, between attempting an objectivity and actually bringing out you know what's really going on. Well, O'Driscoll does that, and he seems to have won the confidence of Rose Dugdale's son, the son who was famously born in Limerick Jail, and he tracks his rather uneven life too, which is, reflects in some ways not so well on his mother, for whom he still has great respect and admiration. And 
there's a sensitivity there in dealing with personal relationships, which a biographer of somebody still living has to negotiate. And I think O'Driscoll negotiates it admirably. Just going to end because all good conversations spark a reading list. And I would love now to read your essay, the essay that you mentioned, Marginal Men. Where can we find it? It's published in a book of mine called pa- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ...and Mr. Punch, Connections in Irish and English History. Right, I'm going straight... Originally published by Penguin, but I think it might be in Faber Finds now. Anyway, it is still in print. I'm, I'm, going, and Mr. I'm Punch. going straight out to get that because, you know... I suppose I'm conscious as a person who's moved from England to Ireland. I may have fallen under some of the spell <laughs> of, <laughs> the, well, the, the desire to remake myself. So it sounds fascinating. Well, don't hire a helicopter and stay away from the milk churns is my advice. Thank, thank heavens my altogether more bucolic pastimes are what I'm interested in but Roy how fascinating to talk to you thank you so so much for coming to talk to us today about Rose Dugdale thank you Alex lovely to talk to you bye-bye to come on the show from the French Revolution to the concept of catwashing we discuss the business of actualité and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, you may be as cosmopolitan as the best of us, keeping up with news and politics in other countries. I bet you know all about the lively French political scene, for instance. But do you know what catwashing is? And I don't mean keeping your feline friends clean. Here to enlighten us about this and a new book on French actuality is Émile Chabal. Many thanks for joining us, Émile. It's lovely to, to be with all of you. Now, catwashing, I should say, is your brilliant coinage, isn't it? Can you explain what it is? 
Well, it describes in this case um, the process by which Marine Le Pen, the leader of the, the far right party, attempted or has attempted in the last year or so to polish her brand, shall we say. And she did this by beginning to circulate news about her, not just her love of cats, which people have known about for a long time, but actually her commitment to looking after cats. As she recently got a certification in cat care. I'm not sure what the exact translation is, but in France, it certifications for everything so this is a typical example of that and then she posted pictures of of her cats and of her with her cats on her instagram page and other social media sites and this was of course in the run-up to a presidential election where she was expected to do well and she did of course do very well and many commentators the kind of people who follow this world of politics felt that this cat washing as i've called it was a way for her to seem more approachable which is something that's of major concern because she she has quite an abrasive personality that that was traditionally part of her and indeed her family's political brand so bringing these cats into the frame, quite literally into the frame, was, I think, quite a conscious way of making her seem more, more likable. And then, of course, by extension, making her policies and her party seem more likable as well. I and, have and to it, say, this is just completely horrifying to me, because not only have I got three cats, they actually have a French connection. They are named after what was originally a French children's TV show, Hector's House. They are called Hector, Kiki and Zaza. And... I don't want to have any form of connection with Marine Le Pen. I don't it's think it means you have a connection with Marine Le Pen. I think that's well, but maybe that's I maybe I use them to enhance my own image and make I'm me sure. seem more approachable. <laughs> well, anyway, this is beside the point. But it was a horrifying <laughs> moment. I do, however, Emil, I do love the idea that you have. You know, maybe in a few weeks' time, everybody will be talking about cat washing. You may have just really invented the next new way of describing politics. Well, I think all, all academics aspire to inventing a term that then becomes very widely used and with which they can be associated for the rest of their career. So if, if that happens to be cat washing, I'm not going to complain. The fact that it's cats is a coincidence in a way, because the real issue at stake here is how do politicians make an impact? How do they have an effect in a very crowded political landscape, right? And that's the problem with democracy, which is something that's at the heart of this book that Luc Boldonski and Arnaud Esquet have written, is how do you find a space in that crowded landscape? And if cats work very well, they may not work so well for you, I'm not sure. But it was a particularly brilliant one for her, wasn't it? Because as you say, that her and her family, especially her father, had this rather kind of aggressive and as you say abrasive stance and also a lot of their policies are well they're certainly very hostile to immigrants so for them not to seem like uh, you know as though they're sort of aggressive baddies it's this is a very softening kind of look isn't it absolutely and it, in the case of mind of ben it's been a a strategy for many years now she's mm. been trying to scrub the image of her party and to some extent that's had to do with policies and and trying to make her brand as it were more worker friendly the front national as it was a rassemblement national as it is now has become the party of the working classes in france and that's very mm. clear in all the kind of sociological and polling data that we have but being the party of the working classes and of working people doesn't necessarily make you automatically approachable and so on the one hand there's been work on the policies and trying to make them more acceptable and scrub out the rough edges but all of these little moments of spin I think are, are quite important and of course in, in this case it was spin through social media through the internet and that's become a very powerful tool for politicians to communicate. Mm. Let's talk about the book that you mentioned. So it's called Qu'est-ce que l'actualité politique? And I would like to talk about the word actuality, because we're often taught that the English translation for this is news, but it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Yes, I, I think it is. I mean, it's more than that in French in general, and it's more than that in this specific book as well. Actuality, I often find this with French words. French words are, are more conceptual. Um, mm. Many of these words have a kind of greater conceptual hinterland right if you think about news or current affairs in English that people have a fairly clear idea of what that is whereas actuality can include news and current affairs and it almost always does but it actually refers in a more abstract sense to things that are newsworthy things that are getting people's attention and I use the word thing because 
it doesn't have to be an event or a person. It could be a, a thing like mind defends cats. So in a sense, that's, that's more abstract. I think it's quite useful to think about the word when think about this book, which is a book written by two well-known sociologists, Luc Boltowski in particular, has been around for a very, very long time, has written some very, very important books, some of which have been quite successful in the English-speaking world as well. And so when these sociologists talk about actuality, they're essentially talking about time and how time works. And their interest here is lecturality politique, in other words, political time. Right? How does political time work? How do certain things penetrate in the news cycle? How do certain things come to public attention? Mm-hmm. And it also and suggests, doesn't it, in, in terms of time, the sort of immediacy of the news cycle or a hit on social media, a debate on TV, as we're seeing in the UK, but how they actually continue to exist in time. The sort of idea of something being yesterday's news doesn't seem to quite pertain in the modern era. Absolutely. And I mean, the other big word in the book, along with actuality, is politisation, which means politicization. And that's much easier to translate in, into English. And so the authors here are interested in how actuality, which is by definition something that's fairly kind of temporally constrained, right? It happens in a particular moment and then it fades out. There's other things that penetrate the news cycle. And politicization, so how people become politicized, how they engage with with politics. So you're absolutely right. It's about the moment of actuality and then the sort of the the long tail, the impact, the consequences that has on on individuals. And so you say that at the heart of the book, there's a big analysis of raw material. Can tell us what they're analysing and why they're using that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both Boltowski and Isker are sociologists, so that means that they need to draw on a certain kind of corpus of data. And it's quite interesting what they did. Um, they essentially asked Le Monde, one of France's most famous daily newspapers, probably its most respected daily newspaper, whether they could have access to below-the-line comments on the Le Monde website for a certain period, of, I remember correctly, of a few months. Um, and this amounts to thousands and thousands of comments. And not only did they get access to the comments that were published, but they also got access to comments that were not published. In other words, those that were moderated or not allowed to be published. In addition to this corpus, they also asked the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel, which is the French audiovisual archives, an amazing thing for scholars of France. It's basically a sort of deposit library of France's TV and radio pretty much since the inception of those forms. So it's an incredible kind of resource. And the the INA, as it's called, they have a series of YouTube channels where they put up videos, usually historical archive videos that relate to contemporary events. And there too, they requested to have access to the kind of below the line comments on YouTube. That's the raw material they use. And I think they want to use this because they want to explore how individual users interact with the news. And obviously for that, you need to find a point of of interaction. This seems to be an effective one for their purposes. I mean, it's like the job nobody wants to do, isn't it? (laughs) It's really, really interesting. But below the line, especially unmoderated below the line, is where a lot of people don't want to go because you get a lot of quite extreme behaviour. You get trolling and hate. And I mean, I think the moderator's job is not a particularly enviable one. So they're looking for kind of strands of behaviour and reactions to particular events. Is that what they're doing? That's right. They're not that interested in the events themselves. So mm. this is not a book to read if you're interested in the events that take place. You know, I think it's, it's essentially in 2020, the data set they use. So it's not really about events. It's about the response to the events. And, and yes, of course, there is trolling. Yes, of course, there are a lot of unsavory things that are being said. And, and that includes, obviously, those comments that are moderated out are never published. There's actually a very interesting section in the book about how moderation works and how, in many cases, it's outsourced to companies that actually run, they run moderation for these sorts of news platforms. So, for example, and there's a basic level of moderation where there are certain keywords 
that trigger a kind of alert, as it were. And then there's a more in-depth moderation where real human beings actually read the comments and try and determine whether they violate the guidelines or the rules of, of the website in question. There's a lot going on. I think in terms of methodology, a lot of what they've done is passing for certain words and certain concepts and certain phrases. So they're not reading these thousands and thousands of comments individually. And of course, they have research assistants to help them do this. But they're stepping back and they're interested. I think best way to describe it is they're interested in the kind of the, the form of responses. Mm. How do we respond? What sort of words, concepts, ideas, phrases, approaches do we have when we write these sorts of below the line comments? I wonder if it sheds any light on how that behaves as a kind of dynamic process in the sense that people feed off each other, don't they? I mean, you certainly see that on social media, that arguments and thoughts and often extremely unsavoury behaviour actually has its own momentum it sort of incites itself as it were and I wonder if that was anything that they that they found anything interesting to discuss on those lines the answer to that is probably yes and no because yes in the sense that they're quite interested in politicization and therefore they're interested in following how certain users uh, but we don't know who they are right by definition you can use any kind of name for these comments so in some cases they follow users they follow the journey of those users through their comments so how do they respond to certain kinds of news and then how does that in turn shape their own political attitudes how does the responding to the news make them respond differently mm. the next time or the, mm. the time after that what's missing though in in the book and this is this i think is a really substantial omission and i don't understand why they don't address this is social media because below the line comments are the contemporary equivalent of letters to the editor right it's a fairly slow form of engagement right whereas social media as we all know is about the viral it's about the hit it's about what's trending and people have these discussions in real time you know in a a matter of hours something can appear and, and disappear whereas comments below the line they're already in relation to something static like a news article or a video that's going to be up for a long time so they don't have that sort of dynamic quality and i think that's missing here and I, I did wonder a lot as I was reading the book whether the users who are writing below the line comments are they the same people mm. who also have social media profiles do they behave differently on reddit or on twitter than they do mm. when they're writing these below the line comments I imagine they do but that's not addressed at, at all in the book yes that the different platform makes people engage differently that you might be quicker and more reactive on twitter or something like that yeah, absolutely. And you you might also be more inclined to introduce non-textual elements. Mm. So Twitter famously is a place where the video and the meme is king. And we're all told when we start using Twitter that we should make sure that we have an image in our tweet or something visual in the tweet, because otherwise everybody will, will ignore it. And of course, in below the line comments, there's no possibility for that sort of engagement. So again, that's another thing that's missing. I mean, this is probably too large a question to answer really but that sort of real-time responding that social media space often I mean we see it all the time leads to a kind of ramping up people taking really extreme and entrenched positions and I'm wondering if that actually favors politicians who are on the extreme because people will find themselves willing to say all sorts of things that perhaps if they had some distance there seems to be no check and balance, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And I wonder if that if that's something that extremist politicians are really thinking about how to exploit. Yes. And again, I, I was thinking about that reading this book because the below the line comments are by definition comments on something that is already an interpretation of current events. Right. So if you're commenting mm-hmm. on an article in mm-hmm. The Guardian or in, in Le Monde or, or whatever, the journalist who's written that piece has already given a particular interpretation. So you, what you're doing is you're engaging with interpretation of actuality. But of course, on social media, you can engage directly with people. And we know that many right-wing populist leaders have 
made a lot of this direct communication with the people, right? That, that I think that's very important in a kind of populist framework to be able to talk beyond institutions and talk beyond parliaments and politicians and parties and, and the media talk directly to the people. And of course, social media is a, is a fantastic place to do that. So if you want to yell at Rishi Sunak, you could yell at Rishi Sunak on Twitter and you're actually yelling at him. I mean, whether anybody actually reads your yelling is a different matter, but there's this kind of direct communication. Whereas in these below the line comments, what you're doing is you're actually criticizing the, if you are criticizing, you're criticizing the institution that is mediating actuality rather than directly the politician themselves. Mm. In terms of sort of talking directly to the people, as it were, you say that the authors they sort of trace a line from the reader's comments back to the pamphleteering of the French Revolution. Do you buy that interpretation? I find it quite interesting. I think this is where, as a historian, I'm quite taken by this idea of continuity in, in form and genre. I do think, for example, that the political essay, which is often relatively short, so 20 50, 80 pages, is a very specifically French tradition, and there is particular forms that takes, or particular ways in which you attack people, particular forms of polemic, and then there's a, a clearly defined audience for those kinds of things as well. And it does strike me as plausible that there is this continuity. I mean, we already know that there's a continuity between political essay writing in, let's say, in the post-war period, in the post-1945 period, and the tradition of pamphleteering in the French Revolution. So I found that quite interesting. I thought that was quite striking. I also quite liked it because I think there is that tradition of pamphleteering has a lot of humour and irony in it. And the best below-the-line comments, and indeed, you know, the best social media, I think, has some of that irony in it. So it doesn't seem implausible to me. Mm, you're right. It's important to remember that you often people wring their hands about trolling and kind of extremism and stuff, but also you get a lot of wit and a lot of insight and a lot of very sharp political thinking in those comments as well. I mean, of course you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I suppose the difference with the below the line comments that Bodonsky and Isker were looking at is that there's very little possibility for multiplication. That is, it's very unlikely that your comment on a Guardian article will go viral. Whereas a really sharp meme on Twitter might go viral. So it's also makes you think about different communities, right? If you're engaged in below the line commenting, you have a specific idea of the community you're talking to. And it's much more restricted because you're talking essentially to other people who do that sort of thing. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the end, do you think this real time commentary on things that are happening, do you think it's influential? Do you think it has a a far-reaching impact, or does it disappear when the next thing comes along? I don't know. It's hard to say. Boutonsky and Esquerre in their book, they make a strong case for, you know, below-the-line commenting as a key part of the politicization of those people who do it. I'm not entirely persuaded about that. I think it's it's very difficult to explore politicization without thinking about the tensions between offline and online politicization, and also in how the two might or might not translate into each other. That's not their purpose. I'm not criticizing them for that. I don't, don't think they have space in, in a book like this to think about that, nor can they really do it methodologically because people who write below the line comments are anonymous. But I think there are quite a lot of steps from writing a comment in front of your computer screen to, let's say, joining a political movement or voting for a particular party or personality. I think that seems to be a, something of a stretch. The only thing I would say, coming back to catwashing, is that these social media and online engagements, they can leave impressions. They may not leave strong traces, but they can leave impressions. And I think mm. Marine Le Pen's cats left an impression. People probably don't really remember that now. Maybe it's, I, I think it was kind of mm. pre-election thing. I'm not sure French, unless you're very into French politics, you're not really that going to follow that sort of thing, but it leaves an impression. And that impression can be really important for politicians looking to change or develop their image in some way. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've come full circle with the catwashing. We look forward to catwashing becoming a meme in the next few days. And no doubt that will all go viral and all the way around the world. I mean. Well, as ever, we rely on our brilliant listeners and I <laughs> yes. know they can do it. Take those felines and make them go viral. But well, I, I give that my stamp of endorsement. <laughs> 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 the, pro- the problem is that cat videos are already a major subgenre on the internet. So, so breaking through with cat washing specifically uh, will require some some effort on the part of your listeners. Okay, well, let's well, see what we can do. <laughs> Many thanks for joining us, Emil. Thank you thanks. so much, Emil. Thanks very much. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Roy Foster and Emil Shaban. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. From Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.